Previously on There There. I waited and still no answer. I did not know how much time had passed. Isn't that the way it always is when we wait? Waiting is something that we have not been conditioned to do. Delay and delay of gratification is even worse. Was it just a minute or several? I knocked again and no answer. And it made sense. Why would anyone be here when they would be at the hospital or congregated at someone's house commiserating at Mr. Juarez's death? I took the bag and placed it at the doorstep. She would want it returned even though she no longer needed to reuse the aluminum foil. She could finally discard it, never having to use it again for a sandwich. And I thought about the thermos, and I would never be able to taste that amazing soup. And still I further thought about that note. She was sorry. What was she sorry about? Maybe they got into a fight and she was mad at him, and so she wanted to apologize but couldn't say the words, so she wrote them instead. Tell her for me. Please tell her for me. I looked at the eagle in the bag and opened it, taking the napkin out. I'm sorry. I'm always sorry. I just hope you'll forgive me one more time. I love you, Dan. I always will, even when I forget that I do. Even when you forget that I do. I took a pen out of his bag and scrawled as best as I could. I love you. I placed the napkin in the mailbox, but I kept everything else. The thermos, the lunch bag, even the over-crinkled foil. It was the cost of helping out Mr. Juarez. Thank you. You're listening to There There, Episode 5, Back to the Hive. from work for a long time. I'm not talking about a day or two, or even three. I'm talking about when you've been gone for such a long time, the other life you've led, the time away from work seems normal. Whether it's a vacation or staycation, or even a really bad cold. When you return to reality and have to interact with everyone from the world you have temporarily been absent from, it's weird. It's like you think people are looking at you all funny, and they seem to whisper to each other, Where's he been? Inevitably, they ask questions. How are you? How have you been? Did you get married? Were you on your honeymoon? Is everything okay? Was there a death in the family? I'm so sorry for your loss. Followed by the obligatory, If you need to talk, I'm here for you. Let's get together to catch up, okay? We should go for drinks, right? I initially thought that my supervisor would be discreet, but he knew that I was asking for too much. I knew he couldn't keep his mouth shut, and I can tell by the looks I got. And I could tell even more when no one asked any questions. No one said anything of substance, just kept it about work. I didn't even get any superficial talk. Do you know how hard it is to talk to someone from beginning to end and not say, how are you, or how is your day going? Not sure if this was a telephone game thing or not, where he told someone that I was having a psychotic episode or an attack or something like that. And it went from person to person until people thought I was institutionalized, or maybe even escaped from one. That would explain the looks, like I might snap if they said something wrong. So they walked in eggshells, and come to think of it, this might not have been a bad thing after all. Or it might have been an announcement during M3 or H2, or even F3. Monday morning meeting, hump day huddle, finally F and Friday, respectively, whether it be cheese or a monotone announcement. I once heard him say in a meeting that so-and-so's wife just got diagnosed with cancer and he was having a hard time with it. I was repulsed. Why would you say something like that in a public meeting when it was obviously a private matter? But after thinking about it, maybe it wasn't callous or cheese or intrusion. Maybe it was sincere. Maybe he wanted to inform staff that one of ours was hurting and so we should take care of our people. Then again, maybe not. 
so people walked in their eggshells and whispered throughout the morning. At lunchtime, my head was pounding, and I went to my office and closed the door, and then the blinds, and just to be sure, I went back to lock the door. I reached into my drawer and pulled out my lunch bag with the eagle on it. I then unzipped it and pulled out the thermos, followed by a wrinkled foil wrap sandwich, ham and cheese with a little bit of mustard and mayo. When I unscrewed the lid of the thermos, I could smell the warmth of the soup. I hadn't exactly recreated the recipe, but I would over time. Mine was an oversimplified copy, a lesser than. If the two were in bowls next to each other, it would be easy to tell them apart. One was a bad copy of the other. Mine. He was missing something, and I thought that maybe I would visit the widow Mrs. Juarez and just ask her for the recipe. But then I would have to explain how I tasted the soup. Maybe I could walk past her house and I could ask her about the wonderful smell. Then she would invite me in to eat with her and then I can ask her about the recipe. And when I was done, maybe do some repairs around the house. Anything to get the secret of that recipe so that the bowls would be indistinguishable. Like maybe she oven roasted the garlic as well as the vegetables. I could try that next time and perfect it over the next year. And I thought about her in that house. And now she would be alone in that kitchen, probably making the soup in the evening, listening for Mr. Juarez's truck door to slam. She would quickly straighten up in the kitchen first, and then her hair, and when the door opened, she would pretend that she didn't hear him, and he would walk into the kitchen and place his hands around her waist, and kiss her gently on the neck, and she would close her eyes and feel the warmth all over her body, and an uncontrollable smile would appear on her face before they sat and supped. But she would never ever again have to pretend not to hear the truck door close, nor the front door close, nor would she ever feel the warmth all over her body. And so she only had the memories to provide the nourishment and sustenance for her heart, for her soul. I thought about what that warmth must feel like. What would it be for someone to touch me like that and to feel that flow throughout my body? And my thought went to one place, my other. How he held me in that moment in the alleyway, and then he was gone. And I have this memory, even though I think it is a false memory now, based on the events of the past week, and so I could only dismiss it. I had to if I wanted to retain a semblance of sanity. Even Mr. Wars' other that drove the ambulance might have been false. I only had a glimpse and I could have seen anything I wanted to see in my distress at that particular moment in time. I know now that I must fight that fantasy to have a chance in this reality. When I was done with the soup and sandwich, I took a napkin to wipe my face. The napkin was crisp in its newness. It didn't have a message scrawled on it with ink that bled through the layers. It was blank with no thoughts of an apology for someone who loved me but hurt me and now was seeking repentance and forgiveness that eventually I would forgive. And so I took the emotionally unevocative napkin and threw it in the garbage can. I screwed the lid back in the thermos and gently folded the foil wrought with use, and I grabbed the lunch bag. But before I placed them in, I saw the red and black as a friend of Jack's screwdriver staring at me, and I could swear it right to life, trying to figure out an escape route. I became self-conscious and looked around as if anyone could see what I had seen in my, his lunch bag through the blinds in my office window. And as soon as I placed the foil and the thermos in the bag, I frantically tugged on the zipper before the screwdriver could escape. I opened the drawer of my desk and set the bag down, and I could swear when I placed it in the drawer, the red and black as a friend of Jack's screwdriver moved slightly before it rested in its place. In the afternoon, I went downstairs to the coffee shop to get a cappuccino with a shot of espresso, and I filled the thermos with the house blend, after rinsing it out, of course. When it was time to go home, I went to my new home, the docks. It was a three-mile walk, but I needed it to get me ready for the next shift. I thought I could just return to my job as a behaviorist and leave the vacancy that was created when Mr. Juarez died, but I couldn't. When I returned to my job, I just couldn't leave, and I knew that I was replaceable, but I couldn't do it. I couldn't abandon the docks, and even the thought of Noah returning couldn't change my mind. It was also a mind-numbing job, and I needed that. I needed my mind to be numbed. 
If I went home, my mind wouldn't relent, and I'd be up all night thinking about the events of the past weeks and their plausibility. And when I was restless enough, I would get up and walk over to my dresser and examine the objects that I had collected, and I would go through the moments, the events, and the emotions that were connected with them, and I wouldn't sleep. And my alarm would go off, and I would go to work without ever having slept. When my sick days were about to run out, I got a call from my boss. How are you feeling? Are you coming back to us? And then I got the call from HR. You're going to need a doctor's note, and if you exhaust your sick days, we're going to want to meet. And so when I had one day left, I went back to work. What you might not know is that I had never taken a sick day in years. I had banked them because I never really got sick. Who uses sick days when they're sick? I use sick days for fishing, hangovers, and me days. Altogether, not very much. And so I returned to work, but with one request. I asked if I can come in earlier so that I could leave early. And so I worked it out with my supervisor. I could come in to work at 5.30 and leave at 2, at least for the time being. He said that it probably couldn't be like that indefinitely, but he was okay with it for now as long as it didn't interfere with my job duties. And so when I was done, I went to my other job. Day shift, I was a behaviorist motivating people to be more than they were. And at night, I counted containers and periodically, unalgorithmically, checked their contents. What more can I ask for? When I got to the docks, I clocked just ahead of Rafa, and there was no sign of Cass. I asked Rafa about Cass, and he said something about marching to the beat of his own drum and seniority and a union meeting, which clearly I wasn't invited to, even though I paid my union dues, which ultimately meant Cass wasn't here yet. And so I went to my locker, placed my Eagle lunch bag in, and grabbed my clipboard and went to the window where they gave me this shift's manifests. Honestly, I waited another 10 minutes or so before I decided that I needed to move, and why did I need Cass anyway? I knew what had to be done. Why couldn't I start without him? After all, there was no algorithm to the selection of the containers to open. I knew that for a fact. And so I grabbed my clipboard and began walking the docks. We weren't a major port in the United States. The first container vessel I opened barely had a third of its potential TEUs. TEUs. 20-foot equivalent units. Almost all of the dock had 20-foot units, and it didn't take much time to account for them in the manifest on my clipboard. When I was done with the first batch and about to approach the second one, Cass joined me. He was unusually agitated, but it didn't present as words, just grunts and exhalations. His gestures were abrupt and exaggerated. That one there, and that one over there he would point for me to open, and I obeyed. At first I thought he was annoyed with me for having started without him, but then he said something. He said, damn them all. I barely asked what's wrong before he told me all that he knew. It was a union, and how they were trying to settle with management and selling everyone short. There was no compromise to be had, he said. They were entitled more to what was being offered. And he didn't want to agree, but everyone was forcing him to. And so he did, but it wasn't right, and he was angry, and everyone would be happy with him because they didn't have to strike, but he knew it still wasn't right. It was all politics. Scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. They all sold them out, so he was not happy. And in his bad mood, he just kept on repeating phrases, sometimes barely audible, and at times I didn't know if he was even talking or just thinking. Damn them all. We continued walking until his phone rang, and he hesitantly answered it. I wasn't allowed to carry my phone during work hours, but he was allowed. When I asked him why, he said, don't ask. And then I asked him why he was allowed to keep his. He said in case anyone needed to get a hold of him. And deep down inside, I knew he was right. Why would anyone need to get a hold of me after work hours? After work hours, that is. Anyone? Is there anyone out there? More swear words, and I went to a container. The first F.E.U. I've seen. And when I began to open it, he yelled at me. Not that one. That one, he yelled. And then he walked off while he continued to swear into his phone. All the containers before this were TEUs, 20-foot equivalent units. This is 40, thus the FEU designation. Not knowing his rhyme or reason, I continued to open the container he told me not to. 
I released the two locks from their respective footings and opened it. Empty. It was empty. According to the manifest, there should have been 20 pallets in here, but it was empty. I took my flashlight and pointed it into the container as I took a few steps in. I quickly realized that it was not empty. There were items all the way in the back of the unit that were hidden in the shadows. But this cargo was nowhere near the 20 pallets it should have had. And so I took more steps in, pointing my flashlight to the rear of the FEU until eventually I saw the contents clearly. Four large boxes with no labeling stacked in twos in each corner at the rear. I looked at the manifest just to be sure I hit the right container and contents, but there was not a match. Since I started this job, we've never encountered an inconsistency between the manifest and the contents. This is what made the job mind-numbing. This is why I was here, to be made numbed so that I wouldn't have to think about anything, especially you and Isabel and Noah. Yet here I was with this discrepancy, and I should have seen this coming so I could have been prepared to shut off my mind, but it was too late. This container should have had 20 pallets. When I reached the end of the container, I examined the four boxes. I placed the flashlight on top of one stack to free up both of my hands and simultaneously allow me to point light at the other stack. I grabbed the top box and began to shift it around, hoping to find a label. But as I shifted the box, I felt the box move slightly, independent of my doing, as if something inside moved ever so. And my mind immediately went rushing back to lunch. The red and black is a friend of Jack's screwdriver that moved as I placed the bag in the drawer. It jarred me, and I took a step back, and as I went back in to resume my examination, something else happened. The door of the container slammed shut, and it slammed so hard that the flashlight rocked to the floor and went out. I was alone in darkness, and in an instant I lost my bearings. It was beyond dark, and I dared not move. I felt that I was standing at a precipice, and any sudden move would propel me into an eternal abyss. I instinctively reached for my phone, only to realize that Cass wouldn't allow it. So no phone calls, and no phone also meant no flashlight. I waited. And I thought that if I waited long enough, someone would find me. But I wondered if they didn't. How long could I last without food and water and air for that matter? But really the question was how long before I died from the lack thereof. And they would find me in this container, and depending on how many days it had been, the smell would be intolerable when they finally opened the doors. And there was no guarantee that I would be in the United States anymore so that my remains might be discovered in another country. I say remains because there are different stages of decomposition, five of them to be precise. Fresh, bloat, active decay, advanced decay, and skeletonized remains. And I commend the person for using the words and categorizing the stages of death because they require little or no explanation, so I'll do without further explanation. So it would depend on how long I was in here, but then I thought that since there was no air and no way in and out, I might be fairly well preserved since flies would have no access to lay their eggs in me, so there would be no maggots to feed on my flesh. What then of my body? I had no will because people my age don't think about stuff like that. Would there be a funeral? A casket that held my fairly well preserved remains? Who would show up to my funeral? And the dismal thoughts of the dismal attendants sank in. Was I not just as alone outside of this container as I was inside? It was a prank. This had to be a prank. After all, it made sense, since this was the first 40-foot container I had encountered. It added to the eeriness. There is an exponential difference between 20 feet of darkness compared to 40 feet. This must be the equivalent of freshman hazing. I remember hearing the stories about the events at the fraternities, and this was a fraternity of sorts, and I also remember hearing how out of control the colleges had been over the years, where students were dying, and it was so out of control that fraternities were placed on probation and some out and out shut down. 
Who could want to belong to something so much that they were willing to subject themselves to embarrassment, humiliation, torture, and possibly death? And yet here I was standing in the dark alone. I didn't want to belong. In fact, I avoided belonging. And if this brotherhood, this union, was an organization that would do something like this, then this would be my last day. I didn't need this job, did I? I didn't need this job. I already had one. And I didn't need the money because my primary job was enough. I didn't need to be here, so if this was a prank, I'd tell them so. And then I'd quit. And then I would go home after working my day job. And when it came time to go to sleep, I'd think about you and her and him until the sheets were damp with sweat. And then I'd get up and walk to the dresser and examine and arrange and rearrange the artifacts of my mind. Not even really knowing if they actually existed on my dresser or just in my mind. This damn prank would ruin everything. But that's exactly what it was. A prank. Hazing. Just to see what I would do. And somehow, Cass didn't seem like the type. It was all business all the time with no time and no inclination for small talk. But maybe that was just a facade. Maybe he did that with all the newbies and this was a rite of passage. If I passed this, I would be part of the gang. The gang that was Cass and Rafa and Mr. Juarez. After all, that's what they were when I first saw them. They were friends, weren't they? But then Rafa barely knew where Mr. Juarez lived, or barely knew his wife. What kind of friendship is that? A superficial one where the only interaction that occurred was during work, and so it wasn't a friendship, but it was a work relationship that only existed during work hours and maybe during overtime. It was camaraderie and not friendship. There's a difference. I've always known the difference. Here's how you can tell. Work at a company for at least two years. It has to be minimum two years. And when you leave that company, see how many people you see after that. When you work with them, you see them every day. But when you leave, you never see them again. Never. And so you realize that it's not friendship. It was never friendship, but it was workship. Deceptively masked as friendship. I know the difference. Thoughts flooded my head and they occupied my mind long enough so that I didn't have to move or do anything. And again, I had no idea how much time had elapsed. Or maybe Cass was just upset that I opened a container he explicitly told me not to open. And to learn my place, he closed the door for a while so that I could learn. Why would he be upset? Because I disobeyed a directive? Or because there was something in here that I wasn't supposed to see? After all, the contents had not matched the manifest. What was he hiding in here, in the depths of the shadows, the box that seemed to move on its own? Didn't it move on its own? Like the lunch bag? But if it did, another thought entered my mind enough so that it turned my stomach. What was inside? Were the contents alive? And if they were alive, were they dangerous? And again, my mind unnecessarily took this and ran with it. Could it possibly be red and blacks with their jacks? But I fought this line of thought because it was not logical, and in this pitch black container, I needed logic as an ally to keep me calm, and so I shook my head of the screwdrivers coming alive. But I didn't necessarily rule out that something wasn't alive in these boxes. Illegal imports. Exotic animals, primarily from Asia. That could be it. Maybe they were allowing illegal animals onto the docks and not reporting it on the manifest. And it all made sense. Cass might have been the ringleader, or at least a higher-up. He took charge of the manifest and the inspections. He decided which containers were opened. He decided to not open this container because he knew what it contained and he knew that it didn't match the manifest, and so he directed me not to open it. This was the first directive that he had ever given me in a way that he did. The tone and volume of his voice did not match the nonchalance that he should have given it. One could have dismissed the irritability on the union and the agreement with the company, but I didn't. This is something only a behaviorist would have picked up on, so naturally I did. So what was in the box? The immediate answer was easy enough. Something deadly. Most of the animals forbidden in export and import are deadly animals. And it made sense. 
There were only a few boxes, each containing one specimen to be sold, or more likely already sold to the highest bidder. A celebrity, an athlete, a crime boss? The highest bidder, and so maybe during the night shift, they were loaded onto a truck and moved with no one the wiser. But I knew, and now I was the wiser, and so I was locked in the container. And this epiphany was greeted by a sound. What was it? And there it was again. It was a faint scratching sound, like a claw against the box. The box. The box that moved when I moved it. Didn't it move? And now I was here with them. Four boxes with four creatures, and they were getting restless, and I was in here with them. The anxiety sunk in. What would I do? Would I go to the boxes and make sure they were secured? Or would I make my way to the door in the dark? The dark. That's an understatement. It was beyond dark. There was nothing to guide my way. I knew it couldn't have been more than 40 feet. And I was approximately 6 feet from the end wall. I could just run to the door in 10 seconds. Easy enough. But the darkness was too much. So much that it was causing me to see spots. And then I could swear I saw white squiggly life forms moving before my eyes. But they couldn't be there. Could they? These squiggles floated from right to left and then left to right with no rhythm or pattern, except when I followed them with my eye. They reset to their original position, moving again, but never out of sight. I closed my eyes and applied pressure to them with the palms of my hands to erase the squiggles. And now that the blackness had replaced them, I took a step towards the door, and then another, and then still another. And as I took another step, I heard the scratch from the box intensify. Whatever was in there didn't want to be in there anymore. And with each painfully slow step, the scratching intensified. How long would it be before I heard scratching from the other boxes? They didn't want me to leave, or they wanted to get me before I had a chance to leave. As I took one more step, one of the boxes that sat on the top fell over, and I heard the feet, the small feet, scurry across the wooden floorboard. It wasn't a red and black, and so I was relieved, but this relief was short-lived as I continued to listen, frozen where I stood. Once it scurried toward a wall, I heard a sound I didn't recognize at first. It was light, almost undetectable, but I could only describe it as a spray. And it made sense. If this would be its new home, it had to be marked with its scent. And it happened a few more times until he was sure that he had let all those in the immediate vicinity know that this was his. It took a while to hit me, probably due to the lack of air in the container. When it did, it was musty and musky, like animal urine always is. Its pungency was intentional. It wanted to let any other animal from yards away to know that he had been here, and that meant they should stay away. And the message was received, not only by me. Soon the other boxes moved slowly in response, as if they were awakening from a deep slumber, possibly a trans-Pacific one. And once it had marked its territory, it began tapping a singular claw against the corrugated steel. Tap, tap, tap. Tap, tap, tap. Tap, tap, tap. They came in threes that lasted several minutes. I took another step and the tapping stopped and again I could hear it scurry, this time closer to me. It wasn't afraid of me. It didn't try to hide in the furthest corner. It was coming closer. Out of curiosity or predation, I didn't know. I took another step. This time, there wasn't a scurry of feet. There was something else. The claws were drawn slowly over the corrugated still in long intentional strokes. This sound pierced my ears like nails being drawn across a chalkboard. Slow, intentional, and with each pass you could hear once dull claws being ground to find tips for precision, not clumsiness. Accuracy, not randomness. And it wasn't just one claw. It proceeded to run each claw along the side of the wall until it was satisfied that it could run them easily through any type of soft flesh. And it stopped, 
and I was alone in darkness and silence again, and my mind was frozen in fear so that I couldn't even generate the noise of thought. But I had made the decision to move toward the door and move faster than the one step at a time that I had fearfully done. And with each rapid step, I also heard it move so that we moved in rhythm, me toward the door and it toward me. What was it? My mind couldn't even formulate a guess. And after what seemed like more than 40 feet, I reached the door of the container, my freedom. And when I placed my two hands on the door, I pushed gently at first, and then harder, and then harder still until I realized it was not budging. It was secured. And then maybe I thought the door was just stuck. Maybe it was budging, but wouldn't I see some light between the door and its resting place? How long had I been here? Is it possible that it was dark out? It was always dark when my shift was over. How long had I been here? And so I pushed with all of my strength, but it did not budge. I was stuck. And then I heard the steps again, but there was no scurry this time. It was slow and intentional like it had been when it sharpened its claws. And in the distance, I could hear another box fall, and then I could hear the slight struggle between dull claws and cardboard box. And the one struggle became three until they were all loose now. Four boxes meant four creatures, if there was one per box. Whereas the first one had a clear, distinct path, I wasn't able to follow the three at first, and so I couldn't distinguish where they went, but I figured they would converge on me eventually. That was clear. I heard one sharpen its claws on the corrugated steel wall. It produced an echo in the room, and I felt the walls vibrate in my bones. And if that wasn't enough, I heard the other two scurry to opposite sides, and then they proceeded to climb up the walls so that I could hear them in the nooks. And then they also began to run their claws against the steel, and the whole of the container vibrated with shrieks of steel being scraped. I was locked in here, and I sank to the floor with my back against the door, and I took both of my hands and began to bang on the door with my palms. I did this for two reasons. One so that Cass could hear me and realize I was stuck in the container, or maybe I was yielding to this hazing of me, or I knew about his exotic imports and I would never tell anyone. I also did this to try to scare them, the four creatures that were converging on me, one from the right, one from the left, and the two up above. As the other three caught up with the one nearest to me, it let out a low yelp and then made some clicking noises and the others ceased in their tracks. And then they in turn made similar sounds and clearly they were communicating with their plan of attack so that it was coordinated. And then they moved in slowly with uniformity of sound. I leaned against the container waiting for them, wondering what I could do to resist them or fight them off, with nothing but my hands. My hands that held neatly manicured nails against their freshly honed claws. I felt the first one prod my foot, gently, this time with curiosity, possibly to see what I would do. Would I defend? Could I defend? Unfortunately, I quickly realized my assumption was incorrect. It wasn't curiosity. It was distraction as I felt the claw slice up my ear swiftly before retreating. I attempted to swat at the source, but it was gone before I could make contact. And then there was silence, with the exception of my breathing, which had now increased significantly. I reached for my ear and felt the warm blood openly pouring from the wound. How would their next attack appear? And what could I do to protect myself? But before the next attack was coordinated, I heard another sound from the back of the container. It was a new sound, a heavier sound, and I could hear the creatures sniff the air before they scurried away from me, rapidly to the rear of the container, as if they were scrambling to get back into their boxes. It was another creature, but this creature did not scurry, nor did it sharpen its claws against the corrugated steel. It was deliberate, intentionally taking its time to move toward me, not out of caution or even arrogance. It moved because it wanted to move, like I was insignificant and therefore not a threat. 
and with each movement I had almost forgotten the sound because of the foreign movements that I had just encountered, and so it didn't register at first, but then it became obvious. Step after step after torturously slow step in pairs, bipedal and therefore human. One intentionally heavy footstep after another. And I began to pound the door louder to drown out the sound of the footsteps. But no matter how I pounded, the steps got louder as they got nearer. And then they stopped. And when I stopped pounding, I heard your voice. I'm back. It's just the two of us, if we don't count my friends. Lucky for you, I arrived when I did. It's an understatement to say you owe me your life. Let's talk about that. Your life, my life, and the intersection of the divine.